Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. I would not be surprised if my next guest has comments, inside and accurate information. Okay. <laughs> because if he knows what the state tartan of California is, <laughs> he will certainly know details such as this. I first came across his, his writing through his, uh, his novel called Flaubert's Parrot. Mm-hmm. And I've enjoyed many of his other books, uh, both novels and collections of essays, A History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters, Staring at the Sun, England, England, The Lemon Table, uh, Letters from London, Something to Declare, The Pedant in the Kitchen. Mm-hmm. You see who is most <laughs> appropriate to talk on the, on the show. And uh, he is also a, a great student of the, uh, of the French, a fan of the French, been honored by the French. Mm-hmm. And as you heard earlier, he also enjoys going to Italy. And he leads a very sophisticated urban London life. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Very nice. And I've had the pleasure of having the food that he and his wife have cooked, and it's been quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. The, uh, uh, the other aspect of him is that uh, he also wrote mystery novels under the name Dan Cavanaugh. Uh-huh. 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 And uh, if you can find them, you're lucky. And... He is also uh, uh, has been a television critic and a lexicographer in his early career for the uh, Oxford English Dictionary. His new book is called Arthur and George. It's based on the true story of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and a solicitor named George Adelgie. And it is a valentine, I suppose, in a way. <laughs> but the, uh, the book is a, a remarkable journey into what it means to be English and what it means not to be English. Uh-huh. And as usual, it's, uh, it's gracefully and compellingly written. Will you please welcome Julian Barnes to West Coast Live. I realize I have here the, uh, the British edition, and, yeah. uh, and uh, the American one's got a slightly different cover and, and, uh, and an entire book flap jacket. The English seems to have just a partial flap jacket. They were trying to make the English edition look as if it had been made in 1903 when most of the um, events of the book happen. Um, and people said to me, uh, uh, gosh, they, they've been real cheapskates, just putting a little sort of paper flap around the back of it with your details on. But in fact, it costs more to produce a book like that. Um, with real cloth and what they call de-embossing. De-embossing. De-embossing, yes. It's a, I thought you'd like that word. <laughs> the, uh, do you want to my story about f- uh, changing body shapes, which you were... Oh, yes, yes, please. I was waiting to go on. I was, I was, I was thinking about how body shapes actually ta- can change quite quickly. Um, if you, uh, I was reading Degas' um, correspondence a bit ago, and he said that within his lifetime, sloping shoulders on women had gone out. And, and if you think about it, we all have more or less, it's more or less a right angle between our neck and our shoulders. But if you look back at sort of, you know, early 19th century portraits, often the, there's a sort of 45 degree diagonal from the neck to the, to the, to the, the point, the, the end of the shoulder. And, he, and this is something Degas was fantastically observant, especially of women. And he said, he said, no sloping shoulders anymore. 
It was that was that uh, because of biology? Uh, was it a way women carried themselves? Maybe it was to do with you know the training you got from your governess or something like that. You know, instead of now we say you know hold your shoulders straight, then they said drop your shoulders. Right. You know, I don't know. And, and what would he, what would he uh, observe of women who went to gyms and worked out to become buff and bodybuilders? Uh, I think he would have liked that. I think if you know, I mean, he was he was extraordinary portrayer of the female body in all its. Uh, um, uh, extent and diversity, both ballet dancers and uh, women uh, drying themselves after their bath and that sort of thing. I think he would have loved um, the challenge of of the female bodybuilder. Yes, yeah, yeah. I can see. I can see that. Uh, you know, there's there's this very strange thing going on behind you. Looking over your shoulder as you were talking about painting. Take a look at Mike over there with his red cap and the black background. And doesn't that look like a painting from the 18th century? A portrait of some kind. <laughs> Mike, turn back. Just, just that sort of. It's my vacant expression. <laughs> actually, I think it's a bit. I think bit old. I think it's Caravaggio. Actually. Caravaggio, yeah. Yeah, 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 I think definitely. So uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I mean, there's a there's, uh, uh, you know, people associating with Sherlock Holmes, yet, uh, and I and I suppose there are people who are fans of Doyle because of Holmes, who who know a lot about his background. But if you don't, he was, he was uh, trained as a. Uh, as a doctor, uh, ophthalmologist from Edinburgh, and he sort of, as a, uh, as a way of making money, started writing these stories, writing stories, and yeah. coming up with a character. Yes, he, yes, he was told, I mean, he was told stories. His mother was pro profoundly influential on him. She was one of these um, tiny, very quiet, never raised her voice, absolutely um, domineering Scottish mothers, you know, and he, to whom he was in thrall for his entire life. Um, he would always he would always do anything to please her, um, and uh, she used to tell him stories when when she was um, stirring the porridge um, in their Edinburgh apartment, um, and tell, they were stories of sort of daring do and chivalry and and maidens uh, you know bound but released by great knights and that sort of stuff, and this is what he started off doing. I mean, he always his in a way his imagination was often was rooted in the 14th century, the age of chivalry, and he liked a quest, and he liked uh, the idea idea of you know saving people in his stories uh, which of course is what Sherlock Holmes does um, and Sherlock Holmes almost um, you know he wrote two Sherlock Holmes novels before Sherlock Holmes uh, caught on at all and it was really he came to he came to use Sherlock Holmes in the way that made him famous uh, as a sort of purely sort of technical solution to a problem in magazine publishing at the time because at the time um, there would be stories in magazines. They would either be freestanding stories, which you got to the end of, and you thought, oh, well, that's the end of that. Or there would be long-running ones, which, which serializations of novels, which went on for, say, 20 weeks, like as Dickens and, and Thackeray and people like that serialized their novels. And so if you missed an episode, you know, you're really stuck. So he thought, well, what about having something in between? What if you had a series of freestanding stories, but with running characters? So that it wouldn't matter so much if you missed one, but it would it would keep it it would combine the virtues of both forms. And he thought, well, what sort of person would have a, a whole different series of adventures? It's and, in, in a way, and he came up with you know he thought I've got someone already. I invented this guy already. He's a detective. He's called Sherlock Holmes. I'll use him. But had he not been faced with this particular technical problem in publishing, he may not have have, have turned Holmes into the figure that is remembered still. And then the George. Uh, grew up in a in a small community, the son of a vicar. And what was different about George, whose last name was Adelgy, is that he was the uh, the the son of a Parsi and a Scottish mother. And 
but believed himself, but was also raised to believe in the virtue of England. Yes, his father. His father had a fascinating life. Um, he was. He grew up in Bombay as a Parsi and was converted as a young man uh, by Scottish missionaries. Um, decided to become a priest in the Church of England. Uh, earned his passage to England. Trained here, there rather. I'm <laughs> not at home anymore. <laughs> trained there in that old country back there, um, and uh, and was given a living in the wilds of Staffordshire in mining and and farming country. Uh, with his and he lived there with his Scottish wife. Had three children. Um, George, who was the eldest of, of the book, George, Maud, and Horace. Now, how, how, how English can you get as a, as a trio of names? Um, and they were brought up to think of themselves as completely English. Uh, their father was a vicar of the Church of England. Um, George studied as a solicitor. Um, he did well at school. He set up a business. Um, he, had, he, 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 he didn't have any idea that he could be anything other than English or that other, anyone else could see him other, other than th as that. So that was rather, that's the rather, rather sort of poignant aspect of George. That he could not see that, that the Englishmen around him saw his race as an obstruction to who he was as a, as a person and to a role in a society that he wanted to fit into. Yes, that's right. Uh, I mean, he wrote a series of articles after his ordeal. Um, and in the course of one of them, he says, uh, many people, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, have said to me that my, tr my sufferings were the result of race prejudice. But I don't really agree with this, he says, because uh, there may have been one or two rather backward people in, in, the, in the vicinity who, had this, who suffered from this malaise. But, you know, I was helped at school. I became a solicitor. No one had any prejudice against me. Of course, race was never mentioned in the case at all. Um, but it seemed quite clear to Arthur Conan Doyle and to me that it was uh, that the, the police targeted is perhaps too strong a word, but they they were strongly drawn to the idea that he must have been responsible because something strange happens in the neighbourhood. In this case, animal mutilation, a series of animal mutilations. Well, you look for someone strange. Some un-British crime happens. You look for someone who isn't completely British. Um, Though of course it's a there's a false logic and there's a false premise because uh, uh, you know animal mutilation has a healthy history in many countries, including Britain. You know it's a very strange crime, and I'm very glad I didn't have to try and get inside the head of someone who did it, because I, you know you think as an imaginative writer you can get you can get into lots of different places and lots of different people's heads. But I, I, as I was writing this book, I thought that's one thing I probably can't do. You know I can't really understand what it's about. There's a, uh, there's a scene where an inspector uh, who's a little more urbane than the local inspectors uh, calls on the local police, and he's, he's listening to this description of the animal mutilation, which involves kind of slicing horses and cows' bellies and, and so forth. And the, the man uh, that he's speaking to, the, the local uh, chief constable, is sort of outraged about this and what it is that people would do to animals. And the man from Birmingham is sort of looking around, and he sees... What is that, a severed head of an elk or a deer up there on the wall? Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, I, I, did, I inserted that detail and tried, <laughs> tried, glad you picked it up. Yes, yes, because, of course, you know, um, uh, in certain uh, strata of, of British society, it's perfectly acceptable to go off and, and slaughter large animals that are, that are bred for, for your sport. But, you know... Even run them down with dogs. That's right. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, you can't, well, you can't anymore. You can't anymore. Hunting with dogs has been forbidden. Um, but you can still, you can still go out and, and shoot things. Um, 
But of course, uh, that's a sort of legitimate and control. Uh, well, it's 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 pleasure, but it's also meant to be you know keeping vermin down and that sort of thing. But but doing but doing different bad things to animals is a, is a crime. Well, as it should be, you know. Yeah. So, Arthur, uh, you 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 alternate chapters in the book. Arthur as he's as he's growing up, George as he's growing up, and as their careers progress, their personal lives take over. George has a very different course. Then they intersect, and Arthur Conan Doyle, in history, takes over the case of George Edelgee uh, and wants to, to solve it, wants to exonerate him. What, what was it that uh, drew you to this story? What did you see in this story that appealed to your novelist's imagination? Well, when I first came across it, I, I, I was reading about the Dreyfus case in France, and a historian said there's a very parallel case of a miscarriage of justice in Britain about five or six years later, which has been completely forgotten. Um, and I thought, this sounds very interesting. I mean, the, the, the curious, this curious crime I can't understand, um, the racial aspect to it, the fact that a writer got involved in it, and a writer is a man of action, you know. Um, and I thought, I someone must have written about this. I'll, I'll get a book out about it. And I sort of went on the web and I went to bookshops and that sort of thing, and no one had written about it. Mm. Conan Doyle himself had written a series of propagandizing articles about the case uh, in 1907, which had been bound up into a pamphlet, and that was the last publication about it. I mean, there were, there were, um, um, there, there are two, two to three pages in standard in every single Conan Doyle biography, but no one had touched it. And it's, so when you find something fascinating and that has been neglected. I suddenly thought, that's mine. I'll, have that. I'll be having that, you know. <laughs> and, then, and then the year that I was doing most of the writing, I got terribly anxious because the, that year was the year when everyone was publishing books about um, Henry James in Britain. There were about three big novels about Henry James, and the poor guy who, who, who published the third one had a <laughs> really tough time. Um, and I thought... As I was writing, as you, you, there are moments of paranoia in, in, in writing, not surprisingly. Um, I was thinking, actually, Ian McEwan's got a novel out next year, and Salman Rushdie's got a novel out next year. I hope they aren't writing about Conan Doyle. <laughs> I thought this flood of Conan Doyle novels coming out. Well, you, uh, th this seems to be singular. I think this is singular, though, of course, uh, because of Sherlock Holmes, Doyle is, 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 uh, is constantly there. I mean, he is it's still uh, impossible to underestimate his, his fame. Most, most writers of any that you've heard of uh, who are dead have perhaps a small um, devoted literary society um, um, uh, which takes care of their interests and meets to celebrate them. Uh, there are one or two writers who have two such groups, and Arthur Conan Doyle is the only one who has three. But you know that there's a, there's a difference between a Doylean and a Sherlockian, do you? I would imagine one follows the novels and Holmes and the other Doyle himself. Uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit more complicated than that. I'm sure it is. Um, <laughs> if you're a Doylean, you believe that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote the books. Ah. If you're a Sherlockian, you think that Dr. Watson wrote the books <laughs> and that Arthur Conan Doyle was merely his literary agent who got these memoirs of, of, of Dr. Watson published. Um, and so if you are a society of Sherlockians, you go through a whole, in, whole evening without mentioning Conan Doyle's name because he was just sort of rather lower type of fellow who got, the, got Dr. Watson's stuff published. What is, and the, there, there are groups uh, that believe that uh, Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare. 
Um, yes, uh, but I think they're a bit madder. I think, <laughs> I mean, I sort of, I quite, I quite sort of like the idea of the Sherlockians. I was once at Heathrow Airport waiting for a plane and, and you know, waiting by that sort of tunnel and the incoming flight um, and, and uh, c was um, coming out of... Of, and it, did, it was a flight from, I think, Zurich or somewhere like that. And, and there were these uh, 15 people got off um, dressed in Victorian costume. And there was a bishop and there was a doctor with a doctor's bag and there was a woman in a crinoline. Um, and I sort of instantly realised that this was the Sherlock Holmes, members of the Sherlock Holmes Society, Sherlockians coming back from the Reichenbach Falls. How did you deduce that? Um, <laughs> well... Uh, actually, I looked at the dog's footprints. Uh, 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 Watson, uh, and it was instantly clear to me. Uh, um, but I knew, I knew that they had meetings, and I knew where the flight had come in from, roughly. So I deduced it. And, but what was the most extraordinary thing about them was that they behaved in Heathrow Airport as if they were the normal people. They, they looked around, and they, they, they weren't at all... They sort of barely noticed these shabbily dressed 20th century people that they were walking amongst because they were the real people and we were some sort of illusion. It was fascinating. And I sort of thought, good for you, you know. It's a very, it's a very English thing, that, you know, that, that to think that the, the eccentric who convinces him or herself that they're the norm. The, uh, and I suppose, in a way, that's what George Adeldeed uh, did, is, is that he, he convinced himself that he was a normal... British citizen, and, and, and once he went through this, this terrible trial, he became kind of a member of, of society. The result of the trial in, in history led to the creation of an appeals criminal court, uh, a criminal court of appeals. I was wondering if, if one of the things that was going through your head, one of the elements, was that we're engaged in debate both here and in Britain about whether people's rights should be suspended, people locked up without necessarily evidence only on suspicion uh, that, that we have had particularly in this faith uh, in, the, in this country a faith in, in the laws and the protection of laws and they've been now lifted because of the Patriarch and other other provisions and I know there's been debate about this in England was it was this at all an element in your thinking about what Adelgie himself went through? Well, I did think when I first came across this story, this is something that could happen today. Um, that there's nothing, uh, there's nothing a hundred years old about this story. That 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 the police still uh, arrest people um, because of their racial origins, and and there's a, and miscarriage of justice of this sort could indeed happen, and bureaucratic incompetence of this sort and bureaucratic mismanagement of this sort could certainly happen today. Sometimes what happens when you publish a book is that it se seems to sort of pick up extra energy and resonance from what's happening. Um, I mean, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't claim that I wrote it, uh, you know, uh, in the light of Guantanamo Bay. I right. think that would be a, a deeply exaggerated claim. But, you know, you, when you're writing things anyway, you, 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 you hope that they have um, that they have a general significance rather than the specific significance of the story. Um, and so um, I, I know that people can, can and have read it, um, finding it even more contemporary than I thought it was when I wrote it. Yeah. I was also, it's also true that DNA research has changed and exonerated many people as well as convicted people too yes. that, uh, of, of uh, crimes of which they've been accused falsely yes though I mean that was an interesting thing that that that, uh, that I found when I was writing it because uh, a key element in the case against George was handwriting expert uh, was handwriting expertise um, he, there was a series of anonymous letters 
denouncing him for the crime. Uh, police logic, he was so clever that he denounced himself for the crime, right? Um, uh, and, and there was a handwriting expert. And in those days, a ha handwriting experts were, you know, forensic scientists. They were, you, it was very hard to shift their evidence. And he said that George had written all these letters but one. And as I was writing that section of the novel, I thought of, you know, expert witnesses we have today. And no doubt at the moment DNA seems absolutely, you know, 100% slam dunk, can't miss. But there are other, for example, there, was a, there have been cases quite recently um, in which women have been uh, sent to prison in Britain for killing their children on the evidence of one particular expert paediatrician. And it turned out that the sort of statistical basis for um, his assertions that, you know, if one child in a family dies, it's, there's an X percent chance the mother had, had killed it. If two died, it's 100% certain that the mother killed, killed the, child, the children. And, and, that, and the sort of, you know, the awe in which the expert witness is held, and the more that they go into the box uh, in separate cases and say the same things, the more their, their, their evidence is in, becomes incontrovertible. So, so things like that, I thought, well, that, that, that's going on still. And it may indeed be at some point, um, you know, DNA evidence will be fine. Well, I mean, it can obviously be fixed in some way. You know, you can, it can be planted just as other evidence can be. Your, uh, your interest in, in um, the mystery form uh, includes having ghost-written books, or, or I guess, written them, not ghost-written, but uh, under the pseudonym of Dan Kavanaugh. Uh, you got to be careful with a lexicographer here. Yeah. And, Use the right words. <laughs> and, the, uh, uh, and, and, and I've also heard you in BBC radio plays in Maigret, Georges Simenon uh, Mysteries, adapted for radio as a voice actor. Yeah, yes, well, I'm not a very good voice actor, but I, I couldn't resist the, the chance they were, the BBC Radio was dramatizing some, some Simonon stories. And, um, and there, there was a part for Simonon in each of them, and they, so, and he, in which he discusses the cases with Maigret. So I had these, they were very carefully short lines written, you know. They didn't want to test my acting powers. So I'd say something like, so, Simonon, I, I said, I won't put on a Belgian accent, that's the one condition. Um, and so I played Simonon, I'd say things like, so, Maigret, you must have been very puzzled by the way that wine glass had been upset in the zinc bar on the corner of the Rue Montmartre. And I go, oh, I go, I mean, I think, thank you, yeah. See, I was, it, was, it, was, it was just about as bad as that as well. And then, and then a really wonderful radio actor playing Simonon would have a five-minute speech. But, but I, you know, it's, it's, I, I love doing it. And, and one of the... Uh, the issues of, of, of Conan Doyle and how he structured a mystery was he wanted to know what the ending was in order to write the book that preceded it. He felt that was the only way you could write a mystery and really sort of anything. And, I, and is that what you, I mean, you knew an ending. You clearly created an ending of imagination about what it is we perceive possibly in life. But did you have an ending before you had the beginning of the book? Um, in this case, I did, because uh, the book ends with a set-piece description of um, a, a spiritualist um, memorial meeting to Arthur Conan Doyle, because Conan Doyle became a, a, a dedicated and propagandizing spiritualist in the last 15 or 20 years of his life. And there was a vast meeting at the Royal Albert Hall where they have the promenade concerts uh, every summer now, and which six or 8,000 spiritualists turned up and a medium claimed to see the spirit of Arthur Conan Doyle moving amongst them and I thought this is where this is where it's going to end I can't I can't miss that but there are novelists John Irving is a good example who have to write the end of the book before they 
they have to know where they're going before they know where the journey starts. Exactly the same with our radio show. <laughs> Are we being played out? <laughs> Julian Barnes, the book is called Arthur and George, published in this country, and uh, we look forward to having you back with us again next week. JulianBarnes.com for more information. It's a great story. Thank you very much. Safe journey. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.